How are y'all? It's been a while since I was up here. Um, I'm really excited to share what God has taught me about 1 Corinthians 11. Um, I do have to admit, I was pretty nervous about teaching this. Um, as I began to research it, I found out, found out that this chapter is considered one of the most difficult passages to understand in the entire New Testament. So yay me. So we're going to be talking today about head coverings in the Lord's Supper. And head coverings are not part of our worship in the modern church for most people. And so where our mind can tend to go when the Bible talks about this are stories I recently heard about. Now this is Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman. <clears throat> she was visiting Tehran, Iran with her brother to see family. She was arrested at a checkpoint by Iran's morality police because she wasn't wearing her head covering correctly. Witnesses saw her get hit in the head with a baton. Her head slammed against the van. Reports said that she was beaten inside the van as well. And she was taken to the moral security agency there to receive compliance training. But while there, she collapsed to the ground. Hours later, she was admitted to the hospital. The hospital posted online that she arrived there brain dead. They were able to resuscitate her Two days later, she died in the ICU. The hospital noted discoloration around her ears, which indicated physical blows to that area. Iranian officials said she died of a heart attack. Masa's parents strongly deny that she had any pre-existing heart conditions. And after her death, protests erupted all over the world. Men and women marched together. Women threw off their head coverings in defiance of Iran's laws. So you may never have heard of this story until now, but many of us can get a picture of something like this in our minds when we read today's passage. We might be tempted to hear about Paul instructing women on head coverings and think that maybe Christianity is just a sexist and chauvinist faith. But is this what today's passage is about? Well, let's start in verse 2 and find out. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, <clears throat> since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the gl glory of man. Okay, so there are some immediate reactions we might feel when we read this, especially the head of the woman is man. And I want you to know that this doesn't mean what you think. We're going to get to this a moment, but to be a good Bible reader, we can't just react to verses and not figure out what they mean. We have to remember the Bible is an ancient text, and we are modern readers. 
So we have to read more than one verse to get the entire context. And we also have to read it multiple times to make sure that we notice things we didn't notice upon first read. So some less noticeable things. Paul is correcting both men and women in regards to head coverings. It's not just women he's picking on. There's actually a balance with every verse to women having a parallel verse to men in all but one. We also see head coverings being discussed in a very specific part of the worship gathering when men and women pray and prophesy. And yes, women in the church were praying and prophesying. It's stated in the most normal way. Both people are being used in the body of Christ. Both are exercising their gifts to bring glory and honor to God, but both are being told to do it this way to establish order and structure in the church. So what was happening was men and women were both creating disorder in the church by bringing elements of pagan rituals they possibly engaged in before becoming believers. Men were wearing head coverings in a way that resembled the attire worn by men in pagan idol worship, and women were possibly adhering to the practice of worshiping Dionysus or the mystery cults in Corinth, where women didn't wear head coverings or didn't bind their hair. And so rather than being set apart, they were letting pagan practices bleed into the church all while praying and prophesying to Jesus. Now, if we put verse three back up on the screen, it says the head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. So before Paul begins to instruct them on head coverings, he wants to ground this discussion in creation. So something about the order of the church gathering should reflect the order present in creation. So when he uses the word head, it has a meaning in this passage of who was their source or origin, meaning who they came from. Paul is not listing a pecking order of importance here, but a historical sequence starting with creation, ending with redemption. So man's source is Jesus. Man came from Jesus. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 told us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Women's source is man. This is referencing Genesis 2, which states it wasn't good for man to be alone. So woman came from the side of man in order to be made. Jesus' source was God. Now, we do not mean by this that God birthed Christ or Jesus is a created being. That would be heresy. But think of it like Jesus came or was sent from God to redeem us. Jesus says this throughout his ministry in John 5.30. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here's an important question. Why does Paul go back to creation to discuss the idea of head coverings? Well, as men and women work together in this new church, Paul wants them to reflect the order of God, making them men and women in the beginning. And this distinction between the sexes needs to be upheld, not obliterated, as they engage in the mutual work of prayer and prophecy. 
So in verses five through six, Paul compares a woman not wearing a head covering to a woman who has a shaved head. Now in this culture, a shaved head on a woman meant you were either a captured slave, a prostitute, or an adulteress. So Paul is saying it's disgraceful to send this message, and there's almost a protective tone from him. He doesn't want them being exploited. He doesn't want them to be dishonored. He doesn't want them to send a message of sexual availability because they won't wear a head covering. But why does Paul direct this church to wear head coverings? Well, verse 7 tells us man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Now, what this means is since man came from God, he shows the excellence of God's glory, not his own. His head is to remain uncovered so that he displays God's glory. But verse 7 goes on to say, but woman is the glory of man. Now notice, it doesn't say she is in the image and glory of man like it did for man. It only says glory. Because woman is also made in the image of God. She radiates the image of God as a woman. God's hands went to Adam's side, took part of him to fashion her. The breath of God's life was breathed into her as well, but she was made by taking part of Adam. So woman shows the excellence of man's glory, and this is why she is to cover her head. She is to cover the glory she radiates of man out of reverence to God. But why? Because church is about displaying and worshiping God's glory alone. As men and women, we say who we are, who we came from in the creation order, but more importantly, we are saying we belong to Jesus. And in verse 10, Paul says, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So by wearing a head covering, the woman was able to show that she was exercising control over her head by submitting to covering her hair or glory so that God alone would get it. But what does it mean by because of the angels? Well, it's this really beautiful thing that Paul is referencing, but I do have to warn you, you do have to believe in an unseen spiritual realm of both good and evil forces. God has authority over them. One day we're going to see them. Right now we can't. But in Revelation 4, a scene is described where heavenly images or heavenly beings and angels gather around the throne of God, night and day worshiping. It says they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And so this is a present reality happening now, right now. And when we gather together in church, those two worlds, the heavenly realms and earth overlap. So when the angels that are present look in on our worship service, the angels want to see the proper creation order being upheld and God's glory alone being put on display. 
So you might say, well, Courtney, if this is all true, then why aren't we wearing head coverings right now? I mean, Paul grounds this argument in creation, right? So it seems like a timeless practice that we should still be doing. Well, when it comes to timeless practices in the church, we usually want to see three things. We want to see it taught by Jesus. We want to see it practiced in the early church. And we want to see it clarified in letters to the church in the Bible, or what we call epistles. So let's take foot washing as an example. We see Jesus teaching this. We don't see it anywhere in the early church. We don't see it clarified in the epistles. So if a church wants to do this, great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if they started to say, well, we alone are doing it right because we practice foot washing, that would be wrong. Head coverings aren't mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament except this passage. Our sister church in the Ukraine wears head coverings. And when people from TBC go there to visit them, some of us have worn head coverings, some of us haven't. They know we don't do this in our church gatherings, and they're fine with that. We are still unified as believers. And so we have to ask, well, is there a timeless principle in this passage? Well, I think it's this. In verse 13 through 14, it talks about judging for themselves by looking at the nature of things, meaning that men and women are different based on the very nature of their beings. Men shouldn't try to look like women. Women aren't trying to look like men. God made us men and women at creation, and this is still upheld in the church gathering. Who we were created to be matters. And so Paul finishes instructing the church, and he ends with this statement in verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So Paul is getting at the attitudes we hold towards one another as man, as men and women. And so his parting encouragement to the Corinthian church is to point them towards interdependence. So what is that? Interdependence is people who depend on, affect, or influence the other. This means that our well-being is influenced by the actions of those around us. We also contribute to others' well-being by our actions. And so I want to apologize mainly to this side of the room. But guys, this is the point in my talk where I got to talk about Barbie. Sorry. Because I think that the plot of Barbie shows the struggle. So in the movie Barbie's Rural Barbie Land, the Kins are accessories who are described in the movie like this. Barbie has a great day every day, but Ken only has a great day if Barbie looks at him. And so Ken is forever trying to get Barbie to commit, to be with him, but she's just not having it. It's not even a thought in her mind. But when Barbie and Ken go to the real world, Ken is exposed to patriarchy, men ruling and dominating everything, and he realizes what he's been missing. And Barbie is exposed to the reality of chauvinism. She can't figure out why women think she's a joke. 
So Ken goes back to Barbie Land to teach other Kens the beauty of patriarchy. They take Barbie Land over. Barbie goes back and gets the Kens to fight each other and get so distracted by their lust for violence that the Barbies are able to take back Barbie Land. And in the end, the solution to who will rule is stated when Barbie says, everyone is in charge of ruling themselves. So the solution for the strife between sexes, according to the Barbie movie, is to be independent, to just rule and rely on ourselves. The exact opposite of the interdependence Paul wants to see between men and women. So none of us should have an attitude that's concerned only for ourselves. And none of us should strive to be over or better than the other, but to seek the fruitfulness and flourishing of the other. When my daughter was young, I realized how intense this messaging was. I would take her shopping at Target and we'd have to wade through aisles of t-shirts that said girls rule and anything boys can do, girls can do better, girls rule the world. And I had to begin teaching her so early on, hey, like we should want our brothers in Christ to do well and succeed. Our motivation in life shouldn't be to prove we're better. Being equal doesn't mean we have to show we can dominate men. Doesn't that mean we've simply become the very thing we say we're fighting against? And I fear that this messaging has only grown stronger. Trending hashtags out there today say, kill all men. The Washington Post ran an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Popular books have the titles, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? USA Today ran an article that says, at today's universities, masculinity is almost never discussed except in negative terms, usually with the word toxic attached to it. But I get it. My days at work, are filled sitting in an office listening to women recount stories of abuse at the hands of men. And I believe them. And I could fill this room with tears over the stories I've heard. Stories many times where the perpetrator professed belief in Christ. Yet, I serve a living God that calls me to be for my brothers in Christ. And this is what helps me get through hearing the things I hear. I have a son. And in every fiber of my being, I want good for men. Pastor John Lambeth said this, men have found ways to get what they want without commitment. This robs him of an essential part of true masculinity. And so a sociologist by the name of Michael Kimmel did a study, and he started out by asking cadets this question, and then he moved on to asking boys and young men in countries literally across the globe. He was amazed at how similar all the young men's answers were. He would first ask them this, what does it mean to be a good man? And they had no problem answering. Honor, duty, integrity, 
sacrifice, do the right thing, stand up for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And when Kimmel asked them where they learned this, they were like, it's everywhere. It's the air we breathe. It's our culture. It's Judeo-Christianity. And so men seem to be innately aware of the software God has coded into the male character. But then he asked them a follow-up question. What does it mean if I tell you, man up, be a real man? And the men questioned said, oh, well, that's completely different. I mean, you're tough, you're strong, you never show weakness, you win at all costs, suck it up, play through pain, be competitive, get rich, get lots of girls. And so what Kimmel found was that men everywhere experienced this tension between the definition of a good man and the way that culture pushes them to be so-called real men. And so if the image and glory of God is man's original software, then sin is the virus that's entered into the software. And research has shown this to be overwhelmingly true within the church. Men that are genuine followers of Jesus, active churchgoers, had an actual relationship with God, had the lowest rates of divorce and domestic violence of any, any major group in America. But then there's this other group that they found that say they identify as Christian, but they have internalized that man-up role we just discussed. They might say they're Christians because of their family or their culture, but there's not this real walk in obedience to God being lived out in their lives. And what did they find with these men? Well, these men have the highest rates of divorce and domestic violence, even higher than men who don't even profess to believe in anything. So why do I tell you all this? First, Jesus makes all the difference in our lives. We can't short-circuit the Christian faith without it having a dramatic effect in our life. If any of us try to live out Christianity without actually having a relationship with Jesus or obeying his commands, we are going to present a distorted picture of what it means to be men and women. And second, we need to be wise to the cultural messages and pulls that we experience living in this world. We are to resist the message of having no need for the other and actually show an unbelieving world what it means to live out the gospel together. And so in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, 31, we get this little glimpse into the purpose of prophecy something men and women, remember, were both tasked with doing. And it says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. So men and women have been tasked with this role in order that we learn from and be encouraged by the other. So I want you to ask yourself if this is happening in your life. When's the last time you would say you encourage the opposite sex? Have you allowed yourself to learn from them? 
Do you think they have anything to offer you, or do you just see them as insignificant? If so, then you're closing yourself off to how God wants to use them in your life. And so the last part of 1 Corinthians 11 has to do with the Lord's Supper and the divisions that are occurring there between the rich and the poor. So I'm going to do some paraphrasing here for the sake of time. Church in Corinth took place in a house. I know a lot of people up here have already said that. It was usually a richer member of the church who had the largest home. And since there was no legalized day off in the Roman Empire, those who were poorer couldn't get there until after work. So they might have to arrive late. And so when the Lord's Supper began, rather than it being kind of this potluck that would ensure everyone getting plenty to eat and drink, the rich would go on ahead and begin the meal without others present, leaving little for the poor to eat and drink once they got there and also having to eat separately from the rich in another smaller room of the house. And so the Lord's Supper was something that was meant to like unite believers of all walks, but instead, in the hands of this church, it was actually leading to divisions and this kind of social snobbery. And Paul is completely undone by this. I mean, he's not having it. And he first states, if they think they're partaking in the Lord's Supper, they aren't because nothing in their hearts and attitudes signifies this. One person's going hungry, while others are gorging themselves and getting drunk. And then he then sarcastically asks them, why do they despise God's church and humiliate those who have nothing? Don't they have their own houses to eat and drink in? And so when we take communion, which is what we call the Lord's Supper, it's something we're to take seriously. It's something only intended for believers to take part in. And Paul says we aren't to take communion in an unworthy matter, manner because we need to examine ourselves and discern our bodies. One of the key statements is in verse 31. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged meaning we are to confess sin. We are to discern sinful attitudes before God, and if we don't, Paul says we're drinking judgment on ourselves, And we are also opening ourselves up to being judged by others. Many of us are unwilling to be brutally honest with ourselves about our souls and our issues. We live in denial of our faults. We blame others, it's always someone else's fault. And so don't be surprised or upset if the people in your life now have to do the dirty work for you. You don't need to get mad at them. Start taking an honest assessment of your own life and stop leaving it for your loved ones to do. Many times we kind of lack this ability to reflect on ourselves in a productive way. Now, we might morbidly obsess about every little comment made about us in a given day or the mistakes that we made, but that normally just leads to fretting or doing image control and staying focused only on appearing in control. Now, this judging ourselves that Paul's talking about is not that. It's this productive clear-eyed look at ourselves and detecting things in us 
and going to God and talking to him about these things, asking his forgiveness and is asking for his power to help us. And so to end today, I want to go back to this idea of the Corinthians engaging in social snobbery and divisions when it came to the church gathering. A good friend of mine has this statement, you know a church is doing true biblical community when it doesn't make sense. So when someone walks in and sees people who don't have anything in common, talking and sitting together, there is something so radical and intriguing about that. It makes people want to know what this thing called church is. One of my favorite thinkers and authors, Rebecca McLaughlin, says that she and her husband have this red alert signal when they go to church, and it's when they see someone sitting alone. They say, friends can wait. This is an emergency. And I just want to ask, what if this were an emergency here on Sundays? What if the idea of someone sitting by themselves was so awful to us that it literally made our skin crawl. We didn't care how awkward the conversation would be if we made the effort to reach out, how uncomfortable we might feel, or how stupid we might look, because we literally could not stand the alternative of someone walking away thinking church was full of snobs and no one was nice to them. And I really do think our biggest problem is not just that we're all a bunch of jerks. It's mainly we don't notice. I mean, I get it. I come here on Sundays just like y'all, and I usually greet the people I know. I catch up and talk to the people I know. But I've noticed that when I pray before coming to church and I pray for these things in my heart, I am much more sensitive to noticing. And then on the days when I just kind of show up on autopilot and it's just a normal everyday Sunday, I'm less apt to notice these things. So I think that we have to pray that God will help us notice and move away from just seeking out what's comfortable to us on Sundays. And I think a great story, many of you know Cam Merrick, who graduated last year. <clears throat> and Cam has an older brother named Logan, who is autistic. And he used to come to the Outback many years ago. But the reason that he started coming to the Outback was because he met a young man named Evan at an impact club. And Evan got to know Logan during that week. And at the end, he came up to Susie, Logan's mom, and stated that he would like to start sitting with Logan every morning in the Outback so Logan would have someone to sit with. But didn't stop there. Evan and Logan became genuine friends. Evan would invite him over to hang out at his house when his other friends were there. The unspoken declaration of compassion and love. He would pick Logan up, take him to dinner, to the rodeo, other outings. He'd pop over at Logan's house to play hide and seek with him, which is one of his favorite games. In other words, it wasn't just pity. It was a genuine friendship that formed between them. And in no other context does this make sense, except in God's kingdom. We might see unbelievers do things like this in the world, and we do. 
but we'll just think of them as a great person. But when we do things like this in biblical community, God's glory and beauty is what's being put on display, not us. They aren't drawn to a good cause, just being nice to people. They're drawn to the person of Jesus, who is the only person with the power to change our lives and make us servants serving one another. So thank you all so much. Um, I've got just about four questions for you all because I tend to run longer than Dave. So thank you all. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.